But at the end of the day, I feel like that cannot be achieved until we educate the man first on the importance of educating the girl child. Welcome back to the fourth episode of Next Stop Africa. Um, I am your gracious host, Amy Kikoma. I'm Congolese. My co-host, Benny, is not here today. She's busy traveling, living life. I hope she's having fun. And uh, we miss her. But we're here with uh, the one and only uh, Luden, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Malik, South Sudanese. And we have Esther with us today, South Sudanese. Um, continuing on with the, the little tradition, we started with the quiz before uh, each episode, uh, just to kind of test everybody's knowledge on, on Africa. Uh, so format for the quiz, um, if everybody could send me only directly <laughs> the answer and not sending the answer to the group, so that way I can see who actually knows the answer and who does not. So with that being said, here's the question for today. How many black presidents have there been in South Africa? Okay. Uh, so Luden cheated. He looked up the answer. Uh, First off, hold on. Don't slander Malik. my name like that. <laughs> Do not slander my name. Okay. Malik guessed two. Okay. And Esther five. Okay. Um, I'll tell you this much. Uh, Esther was the closest one with five. Um, there's actually been four. But yeah, I know we offline, we just introduced ourselves a little bit. Um, but just for the listeners, if Esther, you could say what it is you do. And I guess your involvement in or your passions in uh, regards to South Sudan. Hello, my name is Esther, Jokudu Esther. I'm a nurse by profession. Well, I won't say much, but uh, I personally um, advocate for sexual reproductive health. As you see, my nation is mm -hmm. a very young nation and people still have, uh, people are still attached to the culture and uh, they are so much influenced by culture and their ethnic group. And you find there are some cultural practices that are so much uh, harmful when it comes to sexual and reproductive health. When mm. I speak of sexual reproductive health, I mean uh, the rights of women and girls to like to choose the right partner. They mm. have the right to probably access some of these uh, reproductive health services like family planning. Uh, because of my profession, I am basically involved within that part of family planning because it has affected my people so much in terms of uh, health, especially the sexual reproductive health sector. So I advocate so much on that because if they get to know their rights, they get to make the right choices, and we will end some of these things like early marriage. Mm. I'm sure some people have heard of that. Mm. You find an old man of 70 year old is getting married to a 16 year old is getting married mm. to a 17, 18. 
this mm. thing hurts me a lot. It mm. hurts me. It pains me. And I've worked in some of these areas. And then we have forced marriage. Well, uh, from the time I started working, these things were so common. But uh, with the time, yeah, it's going down slowly, slowly, because I have I got the opportunity to go to the communities that I've worked in, advocate for these things, involve the men, and we talk, and at least they get to understand that, yeah, girls have the right to choose on their partner, and they have the right to make the right choices for when it comes to sexual reproductive health. So before, you know, we dive in a little bit deeper into today's conversation, um, we like to kind of give a quick background on each country in terms of, you know, history, uh, politics, culture, language, and uh, economic standings. Uh, so I'll, I'm going to give a little quick little quick uh, rundown on the history and politics. Um, please feel free to correct me. So the British and the Egyptians colonized uh, Sudan from 1805 to 1899. So the colonization led to most Black Africans being pushed uh, south of Sudan, splitting the country into two provinces, which was North Sudan and South Sudan. Uh, in the 20th century, the British and the Egyptians struck an agreement that left Sudan as a British colony. About 50 years later, the North and South provinces, they unified. They gained independence due to the Egyptian revolution that removed the British influence from the country. Independence for them was on January 1st, 1954, four months before Sudan's official independence. The first civil war broke out with the Sudanese government representing the North and the Unified Separatist Movement pushing to make uh, South Sudan an independent state. Um, the conflict lasted about 17 years until an agreement was signed in Ethiopia, uh, which created the Southern Sudan Autonomous Region. In 1983, um, Sudanese president Gafan Amiri uh, declared the country an Islamic state and revoked the autonomy of the majority Christian SSAR, which is the Southern Sudan Autonomous Region. In response to this, uh, a second uh, civil war broke out um, after about two decades of the conflict and then casualties exceeding about 2.5 million, um, which, by the way, this, is, this would be like the longest civil war in African history. A comprehensive peace agreement was signed in Nairobi in 2005 between the Sudanese government and Southern Sudan. Uh, Southern Sudan was made a semi-autonomous region and guaranteed referendum on independence within six years. In 2011, Southern Sudanese people voted on secession from Sudan after nearly a month a majority of 98% South Sudanese nationals voted to separate from Sudan. Uh, South Sudan was first recognized as an independent nation on July 9th, 2011, making it the 54th country in Africa. Since uh, gaining his, uh, I guess, sisterhood, you could say, uh, South Sudan uh, descended into like a bloody seven-year civil war 
in 2018, a second agreement was signed between South Sudanese government and um, and the main political opposition. The deal kind of offered hope for peace, but you know the road to peace was a little bit tough. And then in uh, 2019, seven million South Sudanese were left in hunger <laughs> in wake of uh, the conflict related to food insecurity. Um, but to like the present day today, uh, there's still a lot of violence that's happening, um, resulting in thousands of people still being killed and uh, displaced. Uh, you guys could definitely chime in if I uh, missed anything or misspoke um, on the timeline between, you know, when independence was gained until up today. Oh, well, um, it's not about the timeline, but I just wanted to add one more thing that uh, the early 20th century, when the British ruled the country, mm -hmm. they divided the country along ethnic lines on purpose. Okay. So, um, I kind of feel like they knew exactly what they were doing because mm -hmm. as soon as uh, Sudan as a country gained independence, that's when the southern region decided to, I mean, that's when the southern region rebelled. So um, mm -hmm. I just wanted to point out that the British knew exactly what they were doing when they divided the country along ethnic lines. So it's like they were forcing people to uh, see to, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of like uh, <laughs> the similar story for every colonial power, wherever right. they went. Yeah. The whole divide and rule. Yeah. yeah. Divide and conquer. Yeah. I think, you know, researching uh, about South Sudan, it's kind of like a, a country that was born or birthed in war. You know, I'll go on a tangent. We can move on to Malik. Uh, um, could kind of give us a little bit more on uh, the culture and languages. All right, so briefly, South Sudan, um, it's a very small country, but it, it's a very diverse country as well. It has over 64 ethnic groups, and each group has its own language and its own culture and cultural or traditional practices. The largest groups currently include the Dinka, the Nuer, the Bari, the Zande, the Shiluk, and the, uh, the Azande. But the exact number of the of ethnic groups in, in, in the country hasn't yet been fully determined because um, some, some few groups might be uncategorized due to lack in numbers or something like that. Mm. But it's a very small country, but it's diverse. So that's pretty much its political history. It has over 12 million people right now. I don't know if that increased, but the last time I checked, it was about 12, 13 million in, in terms of population. That's um, without counting those that... Uh, might be displaced, those that might still be living in refugee camps like um, in the northern region of Kenya, Turkana, Kakuma refugee camp, and other parts of northern Uganda, Congo, and other neighboring countries. And also not to mention those that might have uh, fled to different countries like the US, uh, Australia, mm -hmm. and very many other countries. Um, Luden. To talk about the economy, so, you know, if there's any anything that I say that is incorrect, please correct me. Um, because like Amy said, it was a recent country. Um, normally, like a, a lot of the other countries have like hist uh, like years and years worth, uh, worth of information. While this one, in this case for South Sudan, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information in there. Um, and so I'm going to do a little bit more of kind of a, of a general overview just to kind of give a highlight of everything that has been kind of going on over there. 
And so um, one thing that that I like to mention as well for like different countries is that, you know, we always talk about how, you know, Africa has a bunch of, you know, natural resources and stuff like that. So one thing that I want to really try to talk about for each time we're talking about, um, you know, the eco uh, the economics of each country is to talk about also about some of its resources that are tied to it. So one thing that is really best known in South Sudan is called teak and just natural trees for timber. And a lot of those stuff are just kind of like one of the natural resources um, that are available in South Sudan. You know, for example, like one of their, the gross domestic product as of 2019, keep in mind, um, for South Sudan was $3.681 billion. And that's dollars and not in um, South Sudanese pounds. So that's something to keep in mind of. So once you transfer that over, it's a little bit more of a larger number with the difference of infl uh, inflation. Also keep in mind that prior to actually noting independence when, you know, it was Sudan and then South Sudan, um, prior to that happening, about 85% of oil was coming out, out of Sudan. And so there was really high revenue in terms of oil on that. And so like, those are some of the things that also to keep in, uh, that I wanted to kind of highlight, because then we go into a little bit more of agricultural, where, you know, they have one of, I forget what episode it was, Amy, I think it might have been the second episode, that what it was. So please correct me. But when we started talking about like the rich land, you know, South Sudan is another place that has really rich agricultural uh, land that's there and in so much availability to kind of really relish in that and really relish in agricultural. But then again, we're at a we're, not, we're at another point in this country where again they're not getting all the resources. You know, there's high inflation rates. There's again all these different um, situations that make it really hard for the common people to somehow have this money and how somehow have this, um, what's the word, of uh, return on investments for their natural resources, not get back to them. And so that was just something that I just wanted to highlight. Uh, sorry, I think you mentioned that most of uh, South Sudan's oil comes from Sudan. Well, not exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, before or after, because it was uh, before they broke apart, or was that incorrect? No, no. I I think before we broke apart, most of the oil was, kind. Of, most of the the oil wells were found in south in the southern region. Okay. Yeah. At the moment, Sudan has um oil reserves as well, but most of the okay. reserves are from the southern region, and uh, we still kind of give Sudan a percentage of the oil. Okay. Moment. Yeah. But uh, currently, the pipeline runs through Mombasa. I mean, in Kenya, from mm -hmm. Sudan, South Sudan to Kenya, but we also still give a percentage to Sudan in terms of uh, oil production. Okay, so already this is kind of starting to make sense to me. Oil is a big deal. So 85%, and then you look at how destabilized the country is, you know, one plus one. You know what I mean? Um, so who owns those uh, reserves, by the way? Would it, is, is it still the British? Well, the from what I know, I guess Esther could correct me. I'm sorry, kind of uh, fell off, I guess. But uh, 
most of the reserves are currently um, owned by the government of South Sudan, mm. but um, the companies that have been uh, contracted to uh, to get the oil are mostly Chinese and uh, we also have Malaysians and some other European uh, or other Western um, companies. So hmm. <laughs> quite a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess we could jump into today's uh, conversation, you know, surrounding, surrounding this, um, you know, fairly new country, this uh, young country. So I, I did have a couple of questions that um, to kind of start off the conversation, and I'm gonna try to direct the conversation in a in a in a different way to get it to a point where we can kind of talk more about education and um the importance of of women and girls uh i guess i guess you say sexual liberation or education um i think those very very important and um again i want to reiterate how i'm i'm glad we have somebody today that can kind of talk a little bit more to that um so i think my first question for today which might be easy to answer but i think it might be still a little bit difficult to answer at the same time um what are some of the biggest challenges for South Sudan today? So maybe Esther, you can. Um... Okay, thank you for giving me this opportunity once again. Mm. Uh, being on the ground, as you said, we don't have quality education in South Sudan. Mm. That's why most people that can afford to take their children uh, outside. So they, they take their children out, out of South Sudan to get better education. Mm. But the education system is still poor, I guess. Not I guess, but uh, that is the fact because uh, I'm not in the city. I'm uh, in an area that is very remote and I can see the education system is, I'll say 1%. Because mm. you find uh, you find someone is uh, in a secondary in, in in a secondary school, let's say maybe in high school, but they cannot read and write. They can't speak English. How would you rate that one? That is poor, right? Then we go to the health sector. Uh, being uh, I'm so much involved in the health sector, so I know about health. So you find, uh, according to the government allocation of fund to the health sector, it was only 1% that was allocated to the health sector. You can imagine. So most people, if you need to get a proper health care, you have to travel outside the country. You have to go maybe, let's say, to the neighboring countries like Sudan, Egypt, Uganda. Yeah? Because South Sudan is not having that good health system. We don't have, we might have qualified staff. We might have qualified staff, but we don't have the equipment and we also don't have the resources, some of the health uh, conditions due to the, let's say, due to the low allocations by the government, due to the low funding allocation that is given by the government to the health sector. And we can go to the economy. The economy currently, 
the only i'll say 90% of the people that are living in south sudan can't even afford three meals per day why they live you find the salary of uh, let's say the civil servants which includes the doctors the nurses the soldiers the teachers is less than let's it's less than ten dollars and this is something they're getting a month how can you survive with ten dollars per month less than, something less than ten dollars per month you have basic needs you have kids to take to school you have the healthcare to to look on so we are struggling a lot as a nation these are the biggest that we need to work on as a nation uh there is a saying that says that if you want to kill a nation there are three things that you can destroy that is education and the healthcare because once the youth are not educated they are ignorant they don't know anything because they are the future so how will they rule the country if they are not educated if they they are not exposed they don't know anything so you spoke a little bit about um the the healthcare right on how to get access to better healthcare you'd have to travel to you know the neighboring countries i guess question and i'm going to try to tie it in to the statement is there a presence of the the UN in the country? Uh, yes, there is. There's okay. UN and very many other NGOs. Too many mm -hmm. to name. Right. Uh okay. We have UN, and I personally work with a non-profitable organization. But there are some things that the non-profitable organization or the UN can settle. Um. The there are some diseases that can that are manageable within the country but let's say if you have a heart disease if you have something connected to the heart disease uh, kidney if you have something connected to cancer you and can step in because we don't have the equipment we don't have the drugs we don't have the resources for such so you are always referred or advised to go for further treatment in other countries but uh, let's say if you come from a, a poor background, let, let me not even say a poor background, because where the sector where I am working from, there are some people that have been displaced due to the flooding. Mm -hmm. So the IDPs, they are displaced from their areas. They have nothing. They depend on the UN, right? When they have these conditions that are beyond our capability, we advise them to go out. When we advise them to go out for further management, it's not under us. They go out there to the bills are settled on them. So if somebody can't manage that condition, they go back home and, and wait for the next thing to happen, which is death. Mm. Why? Because even if we refer someone to the government sector, it is even worse. It is better they remain in the UN sector where they can get some basic drugs. Because if you refer them to the government referral hospitals, there is literally nothing. You can't even get a painkiller. Hmm. So what do you do? You go home 
and wait for what next? So, um, just to shed a bit more light on what Esther's saying, um, I think during COVID, when COVID hit, um, I think many countries needed oxygen tanks, um, but South Sudan only had one at some point, <laughs> just one tank in the whole country. And obviously it had to be those that needed most that had to use it. So that just goes to show you how less um, investment is going into the 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 health I mean the health sector, and also to add I mean to answer what Ludin has said that how could you help um I mean, how could NGOs help uh, the country a bit more? I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and he mentioned that he was working with some NGO. I think it was the UN at some point in uh, 2016. He's currently in Canada. But he mentioned that most people have reached a point where they don't really want to work anymore because they just rely on the aid that they get from, uh, from, from, from the NGOs. And I think this is dangerous in a sense that at the end of the day, if these NGOs were to pack up and leave, you'll go back to starving because you don't have any basic skills. You know, the country is not doing enough to, to, to teach people skills like in farming or modern farming methods or they're not teaching them ways to support themselves aid is not the best place to start it's good let them eat let them uh, be healthy give them the medication that they need but at the end of the day if you really want to help you should learn to educate the people in those countries in those regions that you're trying to help learn to educate them such that they, they can be able to support themselves in the long run um there's this saying that i'm sure you're all familiar with that if you want um if you want to help somebody don't teach don't feed don't don't give them fish but rather Teach them how to fish. fish. I guess teach them how to fish if you want to, if you really want to help them. Hmm. I guess I guess to that point, right? Do you think that um some NGOs might be doing this on purpose um to kind of continue to cripple the country, right? In terms of like uh from the last episode, right? We kind of talked about NGOs, right, and how sometimes when Farmers farm and they harvest their food, right? They go to try to sell the food. Um, some NGOs step in and then give the people free food, right? So now that that flow of money, right, that should be going back into the economy or, you know, the pocket of the farmer now is non-existent, right? And now he loses, you know, money and food, right? Do you do you think that this is something that that they do intentionally um, in Sudan, being that there are like a lot of NGOs? Well, um, honestly, I can't say that I know much about the inner workings of these NGOs. Mm. But I know that a lot of research has been done on the fact that NGOs do more harm than good in the regions that they claim to be helping. Mm. In a sense that uh, most of them, they want to keep the money flowing in, you know, these NGOs. Mm. So they'll do whatever they can to keep that place, like you said, crippled mm. so that the money can keep flowing in and they can uh, claim to be to, to keep doing the work or God's work, so to speak. So if they if, if I'm saying that they cripple, I might be uninformed because I really don't know much. There are times when they could do a lot more. I mean, a lot of good in the country, in the regions that they go to I've personally survived on uh, NGO food before back in back in the day so I'd say they do help when it count when it counts but when you look at 
the long run of whatever mission that they have, it tends to be, do a lot more harm than good because it leaves those people either dependent on them or it, the, the government itself might even decide to sort of withdraw from some regions. I, I know a lot of regions that are being protected by the NGOs and not even the government. People are dying there every day, but it's NGOs that step in. Why? Because the government feels like they don't really, uh, they don't really uh, need to step in at this time. Yet right. they should be stepping in and you know mobilizing their people, educating their people, and sort of. Uh, uh, Esther mentioned that there are very many internally displaced uh, people in the country. They should be trying to um, to help these people get back to their houses. Most of them survived on farming, like uh, Ludin mentioned. So, if you could just let people go back to their to their regions to their lands and they they farm and you encourage uh, i mean try to re re revive the economy that would help a lot more than just depending on the ngos mm. uh, just to add on that i think the uh, this ngo thing is doing more harm than good uh, you know you might not see that effect but uh, uh, ninety percent of the of the money that they claim that is given to the country for support, uh, goes back to their country, mm. goes back to their country of origin. Because when you when you look at the, uh, I work with an NGO, and from your salary scale, there is always that percentage that you contribute to the organization. Where does that percentage go? It mm. goes back to the country of origin. Uh, secondly, when you see the international staff that work around, uh, they do give them insurance, and the insurance are all, always from the country of origin. For example, I work for an American NGO, so you find most of the staff that work with us, their insurance is always for the American uh, for the American insurance companies. So you see it goes where? Back to America. Then this one has also encouraged laziness mm. in the country, both, both within the community and the government. I remember last year when the flooding was going so high and uh, the government was like, we are calling on the NGO to come and help us. You see, they did not give any kind of support, not even in relocating the people, not even in providing something small like, okay, as a, as a government, if my people are displaced, I can identify a place and probably I relocate them there and ask for help. But no, you have to call on the NGO to come and relocate the people to that place and provide them with food and everything so you become reluctant the money that you're supposed to spend on the people you you end up spending for your own benefits because somebody mm. has taken over your responsibility you get mm. then on the other hand our people themselves, because I have worked with the IDPs for, I think, a year. And their mindset is UN, UN, UN will do this, UN will do that, UN will do this, UN will th do that. They are so much dependent on UN that if today UN decides to leave 
South Sudan, I don't know what is going to happen to the people. Some of them will die. Because someone will say, I can't farm. I don't have tools. UN did not give me. Mm. I don't have food. UN did not give me. You see the kind of laziness they create. They do, just as Malik said, they do not educate on people on how to get their own food, but they just give people food such that they keep depending on them. Mm. And you will not look onto the other side because I believe uh, when a project is starting, is starting up, there are always different donors that give a certain amount of money. Let's say maybe they give 3 million US dollars for this activity to take place. You see from that 3 million US dollars, you find uh, 50% of it is going back to the country of origin. How? Through some small, 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 small things like uh, what I explained, the insurance and all those things. And you find only 50% is spent on the people. So they are doing, uh, I can't say it's 50-50. They do good, yes, but at a bigger point, they are, they are doing more harm. And I uh, a thousand percent agree. Um, never been a big, big fan. Um, I guess, you know, a little bit of what we just talked about kind of ties into the next question I did have for, for Malik and Esther. Do you guys feel like, uh, South Sudan has a chance for justice. Is that something that people feel is practical? Because um, I tend to, <laughs> and Lunin, Lunin is going to disagree, but I tend to look at things, you know, realistically and, and logically, right? As like, okay, well, what are the actual chances of this thing happening in the near future, right? I usually feel like African countries or, you know, African nations, it's going to take years and years of work before, you know, or if it even happens, you know, for us to 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 get some sort of some sort of justice or to 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 become stabilized or to actually gain some store some sort of like freedom or some sort of space to breathe, you know. So do you guys feel like um, you know, justice is in sight for for south sudan uh justice for south sudan me i i think i have lived in south sudan for more than five years now mm. and uh, justice for south for south sudan will take a little bit um it will take time mm. it's going to take a very 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 long time mm. why do i say so south sudan is being influenced by other countries the leadership, the current leadership is being influenced by other countries because we, we don't do things according to South Sudan, but we do things according to what is the other country doing. Uh, economically, we are depending on Uganda and Kenya. Financially, <laughs> financially, individuals, depend on the oil and they use it for their personal benefits. So you find the youth are lost. Some people don't even know what justice is. So if you don't know what justice is, how will you fight for justice? You can't fight for something that you don't know. 
most of them are concentrating on something else. So it will probably uh, the generation after my generation or the generation after my gene, gene, generation probably will have the just will have to fight for the justice mm. and it will surpass it will take time for this country to stabilize and start doing uh, uh, and start being like other other african countries the biggest problem we have as a nation is we are so dependent and we have taken up that thing oh we are a young country, we are a young country, we are a young country, we are a young country. We are focusing on the problem, but we are not focusing on the solution. Okay, yes, we are a young country. When are we going to grow? How can we grow? What can we do to grow from being young to at least, okay, I'm young because if I'm a toddler, I have to grow to at least a certain level, maybe to a teenager or to an adult. But we are not focusing on that. We are focusing on, I'm still young, I'm still young, I'm still young. We are a young nation, we are a young nation. So if you don't have that mindset of growth, you are going to remain in your own state and change will not come. So justice will not come if you have that mindset. We are supposed to focus on the solution not on the problem before you go malik um i just want to say i think i think you worded it beautifully right um a toddler has to grow at some point right and i think you could you, you could kind of use that analogy for the entire continents right at some point we have to grow and you know start making some sort of decision some sort of movement towards something right but but yeah Malik you go all right well I don't mean to sound like a pessimist but <laughs> I don't really have I don't really have a lot of hope when it comes to South Sudan but it's not all doom and gloom at the end of the day there can only be hope if like Esther said there was a bit more education but we lack a sense of identity as a nation because we're not even proud to be South Sudanese when we're in the same room. Like, we have over 64 tribes, like I mentioned, and we basically speak Arabic and English and all that stuff, but we have very many other languages. But if you put South Sudanese from two, three different tribes in a room, they will disagree on everything under God's earth, you know? So the fact that we don't have that sense of unity, we don't have that sense of common unity or sense of community as a nation, that's one of the reasons why I don't I don't feel like there's light yet at the end of the tunnel, because the leaders are very divided. I mentioned that uh, I mean I think you mentioned that uh, Salva Kiir and Iraq Machar um, they had a political dispute that erupted into a civil war in 2013 that lasted for uh, lasted until 20, 2018. So one the fact that we don't have a sense of identity to the fact that we still depend on aid and this is aid that comes with so many strings attached because yes they'll say fine you're going to give us this uh this uh um, this uh profit i mean at the end of it right you're going to have to add on this um in order for you to pay back this aid but most of these contracts that when the money comes in you'll hear that china has donated five billion to south sudan in a certain year but most of the contracts for those projects that they're claiming to build go to, to Chinese contractors. So at the end of the day, we don't have people that are learning how to build a country. 
We're just observing our country being built for us while we're falling deeper and deeper into debt by the day. So the fact that we don't have um, as leaders that are mobilizing and trying to push for education, we've seen very many countries rising from ashes to glass within a, within a matter of decades. Countries like, uh, places like Dubai, you know, they have oil just as much as South Sudan, but do we really see any 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 difference there? We have so many resources. We have uranium, we have gold, we have diamond, we have so many resources, just as much as Congo. But at the end of the day, I don't I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, though I sometimes am, I'll admit. But I feel like there are higher forces at play here that want to keep us divided. And this is something that can be seen in very many African countries. So do I believe that there's hope? Not really, because there's very many more powerful people that are against us. And at the end of the day, you know, they'll still keep you in that divided uh, state where you, you you don't really agree on one thing as a nation. So if South Sudan is to have any hope, I think this is, uh, it will take a lot. And some of that will, will require us to, to first sit down as a nation, put aside all of our differences, you know, the tribalism, the culture, different, the cultural differences, and all these, uh, these political uh, opinions that are that differ. We will need to put all that aside, come together as a nation, and agree on one thing, and that is the fact that we are a nation. And when we're divided, divided against one another, we will never stand as a nation. We'll just look like a bunch of clowns in the world stage. So that's what that's all it will take. So, Luden. Yeah, you're you're the optimist always for for the podcast. Uh, you and Benny, you're on a solo mission today. Bring some optimism, um, if you can, to to what we're discussing right now. Y'all some pessimist, <laughs> no, bro. It's reality. Jk, Jk. Reality of the looking, situation. Just looking at the facts, bro. Just, <laughs> looking at the facts. Oh yeah. my God, Malik, he converted you, bro. No. <laughs> I haven't been converted, but I've spoken <laughs> with so many South Sudanese like over mm. the last couple of because I've not lived in South Sudan that much, mm. but I've spoken with so many people that ha have experienced most of the the most recent events in the country. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be positive, honestly, when you see that even the youth themselves are not united. Those that are educated outside, they still decide to segregate themselves from each other because of I mean, base basing on tribe basing on mm -hmm. um, the cultural differences that they might have. So it's kind of hard to have hope for the future when the future generation is not doing enough to lay the mm -hmm. foundations that mm -hmm. are meant to unite and build the country. So they're just taking on to what the leaders have established, which is uh, a division in the country. So I'm not being a pessimist. I believe it's possible <laughs> to, achieve, to achieve all that, but it's very difficult to keep a positive mm. mind honestly with everything that's going on right now so before okay <laughs> mood is kind of gloom <laughs> um so i mean i do i i do get it and one thing that i want to mention or just say before i say anything is that you know with any with every with anything that i say you know please don't take it as a way that overcasting or overshadowing any anyone's experiences or anyone's experiences that is going on right now but like I think I, I am very much a believer that things things will work out in the end. We just don't know what that end 
that the the longevity of that end is um and so like is is it possible to be done yeah absolutely like uh, truthfully be done anything is possible and like for me i i actually really believe that the whole idea of impossibility is just more so of a man-made concept because it's something that because people couldn't do it, it it is defined as impossible and so like you know it can be possible, but is it easy? No, it's not easy. It's not, it's not going to be easy. And so like Malik was saying about like, you know, bringing uh, different people from, uh, from, from South, just having that conversation, they're going to disagree on pretty much everything. And there needs to be that commonality. And is that, and and can you develop that commonality pretty easily? And yes, but no. Um, I mean, I, 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 that, that's kind of how I want to look at it. I want to look at it as a way that it can be done. There's always going to be, whether it's now or in the future, there's always going to be somebody that's going to do something, whether from a humanitarian perspective, whether uh, from changing the game. Just let it be known that there will be someone that will change the game. You know, you never know. It might be Amy, you know, just with the podcast and everything, you know, or some of the people that we've already spoken to in this podcast. You don't know. Um, and so, like, just bringing a light into this and by having this podcast and having this conversation already speaks volumes in terms of trying to set that motion forward. So that that's kind of my little long winded positive rant. Yeah, bro. It's just the, the reality of the situation. All right, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sadly, bro, like, yeah, it's sad, but you know, I think I believe two things could be true, right? Like, I I believe there is light at the end of the tunnel, right? I think, like you said, it's just you don't know how long the tunnel is, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, facing the facts that, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that, you know, that light at the tunnel, you know, could just be a lamp. You know what I mean? It's probably not an exit. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just have to, you just have to, bro, it's, it's Oh man, I'm glad Benny's not here. Um, Esther, you're passionate. Um, I, I guess I could say right. Um, I think you're passionate about women and girls' uh, access to education, and um, I guess you you could say you're an activist also in uh spreading the word about you know women and girls' uh sexual liberation and uh sexual equality. So, two part question, I guess you could say the future for South Sudan, right? I think I always, in general, I always believe that um, the future for a lot of African nations will run through women, right? Um, I think in order for African nations to have successful stories, investments in women in every way needs to be made, right? Because, you know, as cliche as it, it may sound, uh, I think women are the ones that educate the nation, right? Because you give birth to a child, you're the one with the child, you know, all the time, you know, um, not saying that the, the father's not present or anything like that. But, you know, I think nine times, probably 10 times out of 10, you know, the mom is usually with the child. The child usually learns from the mom a little bit more, you know. So can you speak a little bit to in terms of like the future? of South Sudan, like, um, as it stands right now, what is it like for 
you know, for women and girls gaining access um, to education and, you know, are there making or is there any um, type of strides being made for for women and girls to to know that they have these options or, you know, to say no or anything like that? I don't know if that question made sense. <laughs> In my head, it made <laughs> It made a lot of sense. As you know, in Africa, women are less valued. Mm. But in South Sudan, it's even worse. Uh, in South Sudan, women and girls are considered as liability. Uh, we don't have voices in anything, not even in the family. We can't even make choices in our family. So when it comes to education, it's not... Me, as a woman or a girl, I don't decide for my education. It is my parents, basically my father, that decide whether I can continue with school or I will get married. And I don't have a voice. When he says you're going to get married, I will get married with or without my consent, with or without my passion so apparently in south sudan i've worked in so many areas uh, across south sudan especially the most remote areas where i have seen um boys are the ones uh, that go to school girls are not taken to school why because as a parent i see if i take my girl to school she is going to get married and she will not belong to me. She is going to belong in the other family. So why should I waste my resources to take her to school? Why don't I educate my son? Uh, because my son remains in my family. And uh, when I educate him, my resources are not wasted. So that is the mindset of most of the people in this country, especially in most of the areas I have worked in, because I have got an opportunity to talk with the community leaders and with the people around, uh, trying to inquire on how we can support the girls. And these are some of the answers that I get. Why should I educate her? And yet she's going to get married and she goes far and she's going to contribute in that family. So they are less valued. Uh, although the country, the government has some regulations, rules and regulations, let me say some articles that are put towards uh, women and girls to guide them such that they can continue with education, but nobody follows them. And uh, you find people in the government are the very people that go and break these rules because somebody says uh, we cannot get you are not supposed to engage in a relationship or marry somebody who is below 18 years but you find it's the same same people that put the rules are the same same people that go marry people who are 16 years old who are 17 years old who are less than 18 so if you who set the rules you break them so how will the other people how will they, what will they do? Of course, 
they are going to do the same thing. Though we have some NGOs that really do support uh, women and girls, especially uh, the ones that uh, I work uh, uh, I work with. Uh, apparently, uh, uh, apparently in South Sudan, most of the NGO projects are, are, are uh, within child protection and gender-based violence because the cases of gender-based violence in South Sudan are very high compared to other countries in Africa because of the culture in the country. And uh, if somebody sees marrying a 16-year-old girl or cutting off somebody from their education is... It's something normal because it is in my culture. I uh, There was a time I was working in, sorry to make it long, there was a time I was working in one of the facilities and uh, there was this lady, she was in high school, she was still, let's say, senior two. And, uh, and she got pregnant and who impregnated her? The teacher. And nobody did anything to the teacher. I expected in some other countries when a teacher does that to someone who is 16 year old, he is supposed to be taken to the court of law and question at least he has to pay for damages or put in prison for some time. But he did not do anything. He continued with his normal duties as a teacher or something. He was not punished. So people see these things as normal. So you find most of the girls are discouraged. They go to school and then you reach somewhere, you are just taken off for marriage. Because as you grow, your parents keep telling you you are for marriage, you're for marriage, you're for marriage. You are seen as a, a source of wealth in terms of, because here when you're married at a, at a younger age, you are apparently the person that the dowry is more than someone that is married at an older age so you find they are just given away but we still have some ngos that advocate for that and they do encourage uh, women and uh, especially the girls who are still in school uh, they are given some small allowance in terms of money such that uh, they call it keep a girl in school such that they can stay in school and when you drop out of school, you don't get that allowance. So this one gives them an opportunity to keep on going to school such that when they get that money, they are able to get their basic needs, their small, small basic needs that the parents cannot provide them. Also in these deep areas that we work in, we give them what we call dignity kids, dignity kid. We put some, 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 some personal, items that we put there to encourage them to come to school uh, because when you are at home you are you you cannot get that dignity kit you only get it through when you are in school again another thing that is being done uh, is um, we have what we call school feeding program uh, you know very well that uh, is hunger and starvation is something that is also another problem in south sudan because most of the families cannot afford uh, th a three meal. So you find people have one meal a day. So most uh, we have some organizations that take up that opportunity of putting food in school. They cook food in school. So this encourages uh, them, the, the, the ladies, the both, okay, let's say both men 
both the boys and girls to come to school for them to come and eat. But it's mostly done because of the girls such that they can come to school and study. But the problem is with the parents because you she might have she might have the passion to be in school and study and do these things but when you reach a certain age your parents are the ones that give you away so we are still advocating that we are still talking to we are still taking this opportunity to talk to the community to encourage them or to bring their, their their girls to school, to show them the benefits of bringing girls to school. I am personally, uh, personally, when I go, I, 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 I give myself as an example because I talk to them and I'm like, you see, if I didn't go to school, I won't be here in front uh, treating you in this hospital. If I didn't go to school, I wouldn't be doing this and this and this to you. I am doing all these things to you people because I went to school. So if you take your girls to school, they will also be able to do these things. Well, compared to the previous years, uh, some people are really, really coming up. They are really trying. Uh, they are bringing their girls to school. And yeah, but we still have a high rate of teenage pregnancy. Uh, why? Because of, of course, I talked of the sexual reproductive health. Most of the people don't know, uh, they are not aware of, uh, because we do not have sex education in schools. Uh, uh, this is something connected to culture. It is pro prohibited. You're not supposed to talk about sex. You're not supposed to talk about anything. Because one time I took an opportunity, I went to a, sec a high school a secondary school and I, I spoke, I was talking about sex education and they, and everybody was, uh, the teachers and the, and the head teachers around were looking at me like I'm, I'm doing something wrong. So they do not know anything about, so when they reach that stage of adolescence, because they don't know anything about uh, uh, safe sex, they don't know how to protect themselves. So they end up messing up. So most of them drop out in high school. So you find the, the few that reach up to university are the brave ones, but you find 90% of them already have children. But I still take the opportunity of encouraging them that having a child does not stop you from going to school. You can still study and do these things. So we have a number of things that still hinder this country from going forward but yeah hopefully in five years to come we are really fighting for that uh, such that uh, we can bring change to this country so uh, i wanted to kind of add on a little bit to my question um period poverty i know that's something that's 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 been like an issue across the continent right um and again uh period poverty uh, i guess could be uh defined as like uh the lack of access right to menstrual hygiene um information and products etc how is that uh i guess being um taught talked about or tackled in uh south sudan 
a menstrual hygiene uh, it depends it's from culture to culture mm. but in most of the cultures uh, the girls uh, always get shocked <laughs> they only get that education when they are experiencing the, their menses but uh, we normally try our level best especially these uh, we have i'm sure you have heard of unfpa uh, united fund something population mm. they are really working hard they move from school to school trying to educate the girls about their menstrual hygiene they are educating them and they, they are give they give them what we call the dignity kit of course which contains the pads mm. and, and 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 new pants so this one helps them to understand again we have also that um, there's allowance that are all, that is always given to the girls when they give them here uh, that money they are always educated okay we are giving you this money it's for that time of the month when you're experiencing this please use it for that uh, for for that and this and this uh but in that is in in the city that is in juba which is the capital city and the areas nearby juba but when you come to areas that uh, in, in the in the deep rural areas you find they don't get that they don't get that information sometimes some of these things are talked on radios but not all the areas have access to not all the families have access to radios and not all of them there are some areas like the area where i'm working from we literally don't have there is no any radio station that can work this side so we take up that opportunity to move from school to school to educate them but still uh, they still have their culture and beliefs that when this because they are educated right from childhood that when you when you when you see this happening to you you are supposed to approach this kind of person especially uh the dinka culture because i've worked so much in their area apparently uh when you start your menses you're supposed to go and tell it to your mom and then your mom will tell it to your dad and then your dad will have to have a big celebration this big celebration is actually inviting potential husbands anybody that is pot that, that feels he can marry you so you find it's a bit dangerous because right. you are exposing them because when i come and i tell you i'm going through this and then you go and tell my dad the dad because that's that's the culture that is the mm. culture for them they don't feel like it's something bad but this is something that is exposing them to child marriage because there is competition people will have to compete and the best man wins whether you love the man you don't love the man because he has offered more dowry you'll have to go with him so because of that some of them keep silent but we are trying our level best educating as i talked of sexual reproductive health which includes uh, menstrual hygiene we move from different places we talk to them we talk especially to the girls within the reproductive age which is between uh, of course 18 to 45 we talk to them and we talk 
to the mothers and this is how you're supposed to handle this uh i think it's we believe uh we have hope i have hope that in in the next five years to ten years things will change uh and uh i guess on the on the note of um optimism for change um in the near future i guess you you kind of answered the question right uh about what gives you hope it could be one thing it could be a couple of things but uh i guess this could be for both you and malik um but what what would you say is something that gives you hope for the future of south sudan i'll say the economy gives me uh, a lot of hope for change uh why do i say so you know right now the economy is so high and uh, you find people have started previously back in the days people had a lot of money there were some jobs that these people could not do uh like hawking like working in a restaurant like they are just working in a shop and doing there are just some stuff that uh, our youth felt like okay because of pride i uh, know i can't do this i can't do this but with the difficult economic situation people are now looking for ways of survival you find people are doing everything just to get to survive so this one is giving is giving hope for them because if you can with pride of course you can't do anything because you feel like ah oh, no i can't do this no no but that one has been lowered people are willing to work hard people are working hard okay what what because we have a lot of foreign, foreigners in this country especially from uganda and uh, if we have from uganda kenya uh, rwanda tanzania congo all over all the neighboring countries nigeria and the jobs that they are doing were the jobs south sudanese felt like they can't do it but right now they are doing it which shows some sign of change because it means that they are building themselves it means that they are they are, they, are, they are trying to be independent another thing is that the youth are coming together they have seen they are trying to unite together they have identified that they are the future of this country they have identified that they need the country needs change because some of the youth uh, activities that you go to you find they talk they are speaking of change they are speaking of peace they are speaking of okay we are the we 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 are the future leaders what can we do to bring change in this country what can we do you can see through music through poems there are a lot of things that are being done that that is giving new hope of change in this country compared to 10 years ago <laughs> since 2011 if you're to sit down and compare there are a lot of things that is giving new hope in the, that the country has hope of being a better country 
Mm, the job I don't know the the juba that you see in the t- in the TV, but if you see the juba of 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 two thousand, let's say from two thousand twelve before the war of twenty sixteen, compare it. Uh, I mean the war of twenty thirteen. Uh, compare it to the uh, to the juba of today. There is a lot of there is a lot of uh, development. Despite of the war of 2016, still there is a lot of development in the country. This shows that South Sudan has a potential of growth. I kept I, I, I kept telling someone some time back, I was like, if the war of 2013 and 2016 did not happen in South Sudan, trust me, South Sudan would be ve- would would be better than Kampala. Uh, it would be competing, let's say, maybe with Nairobi and other cities. Why do I say so? Because the country has the potential of growth, not only from the nationals, but we also have internationals that are willing to invest in the country in terms of hotels, in terms of uh, in other, other sectors of development, of economic development. That's what I can say. Um, well, I'd have to agree with Esther because if you go back to, let's say, a couple of years ago, like five to maybe even 10 years ago, if you ask what South Sudanese in universities like in Nairobi and in Uganda, if you ask them what they were studying, for the most part, they'll tell you that they're studying either international relations or something else. You know, you'll not hear of anybody studying like uh, uh, trying to earn a business degree or uh, in any other field. So for the most part, people had like they had this mindset that the only way to make money, you know, they were aiming higher. You know, they were like the only way to make money is to join the government because that's where most of the money was being made. But when the when the wars happened, the 2013, 2016 war that uh, Esther mentioned, um, this kind of it's it stripped away a lot of uh, a lot from the economy, like our economy went so bad to the point we let me just say that the the dollar was at about three hundred to five hundred thousand East pounds right for a hundred dollars, but right now it's at almost sixty thousand for just a hundred dollars. That's how bad the economy uh, had gotten right. Eighty so, five. <laughs> sorry, Correction. it's, not, it's <laughs> no longer sixty. It's now eighty five very bad so it's eighty five thousand. so the last time i went to juba which was uh last year i noticed that a lot of people were doing a lot of these odd jobs that they did not want to do in the first place because they felt like they were too good for that because everybody had food everybody had money you know um so it's it's kind of a positive thing to see that people are now beginning to get into this hustle mindset you know it's a lot of people have been orphaned from the war a lot of people uh, don't have people to take them to school. So the fact that you see them hawking, even if it's selling bottles, at the end of the day, it's still part of a hustle and they'll learn a lot from that. And uh, also when you look at the universities, um, you'll find now that people are doing a lot of uh, diverse courses because they see that the country needs it. So you'll find that people are doing software engineering, others are doing um, other courses like uh, it could be epibio, you know, epidemiology things that are obviously going to come in handy later on. So that kind of gives me hope as well. 
then this might be a side note as well, but uh, the South Sudanese men's basketball team qualified for the FIBA, FIBA men's, uh, the World Cup on Friday. So that was history making. So um, such things, you know, the fact that the, the, the men's basketball and the women's basketball teams are being um, supported by the government and by uh, even the NBA supports the South Sudanese men's basketball team, thanks to the current coach, Walden, who played in the NBA, um, and very many other um, very many other organizations are also having a hand in that. So it gives me hope to see that we're united in these small, small sectors, and at the end of the day, it will add up to something. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, first off, congrats. Um, I think that's a big, big step. So I guess I guess with that it, it does wrap into my last question that I did have uh, for today's conversation. You know, we talked a lot about challenges. Um, we talked about you know a chance for justice. We talked about the future. So, you know, I want to bring it back a little bit to reality to wrap up um, the conversation. Uh, what do you guys think should happen? for South Sudan to finally fulfill the promise of a uh, real independence in terms of like, uh, you know, you know, for independence that, you know, you guys felt like you got in 2011, but somehow have not actually felt, you know, the independence itself. Uh, being on the ground, I think the biggest, uh, what, according to me, and uh, probably some few people that have sat down and uh, have a little conversation with, especially in the military in the military sector. Um, I think basically unity. We should stop uh, looking at okay, I'm from this ethnic group. I am better than that ethnic group. I feel like we should be the one to rule. Uh, the same feeling from the other side, the same feeling from the other side. From Because that is basically what is dividing the country. I'll say mm, uh, uh, the politicians are using what we call divide and rule policy, where you divide the people and then you rule them because when they are divided, they won't be able to sit together and have a common mindset and identify their need. So when they are divided, you you will continue fighting each other and I will continue to rule you, you get. But if we sit down and we come and identify uh, that, okay, we sit down and we ask each other, what, why are we fighting? You're from this tribe, I'm from this tribe, but we are all from the same we are all from the same country we are all south sudanese why are we fighting uh, i am not your enemy i am you are not my enemy why why should we fight the 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 the, the, the problems of maybe maybe from our forefathers those were their mistakes why are we fighting they should have solved their problems i think this is one thing uh, south sudanese should come and sit down and identify that uh, my brother is not the problem, but probably the person that is ruling is the problem. 
if we come and we identify that one, that is more easier for us to move forward. Uh, I, I, I remember when I was doing my nursing, and uh, because the war happened between two ethnic groups, that is the Dinka and the Nuer, and, uh, um, and this lady happens to come from the Nuer community, and uh, and and we were taking care of a Dinka baby, and when we told her to go and attend to the patient, and she became so bitter and said, "Why should I look after that baby?" And yet it's the reason why I am displaced. Okay. I just asked her one question. What has this innocent baby done? Why, why is the baby paying the price of being from that tribe? Because nobody, one thing I believe is that nobody chooses where they want to be. Uh, I, maybe the baby did not choose to be a dinka. Neither did you choose to be unwell. Yes, but you find your, you found yourself there. So should you punish this baby? Should you prevent services, providing services to this baby just because they are coming from that ethnic group? Well, I think that is one thing we should sit down as South Sudanese and identify that, yes, problem happened between probably my father and the, the other father they had their differences, but I should not fight for my father's differences with another person because I did not know why they disagreed. So I shouldn't fight the other child because my father disagreed with their father. This is basically what is dividing. And if we come together, as 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 the people of the country and we identify that thing i think we will gain independence we will be independent we will stop fighting each other because you will not have a reason of fighting the other person you will not have a reason of attacking because that is basically what is happening. I am just killing this one because they are from this tribe. I am killing that one because they are, they are from that tribe. I am killing that one because they are from that tribe. But I don't know the exact reason why I am killing them. They did not wrong me, but the only crime they did is because they came from that tribe. Basically me, so many times I have talked to people and I have told them, I don't like somebody asking me, which tribe do you come from? Because I feel if you ask me, which tribe do you come from? You already want to divide me. You already want to, to you already want to isolate me. You already want to do a lot of things. Because if I tell you that I'm from this tribe and you happen to hate my tribe, it means you will fight me because I am from that tribe. So I have gotten an opportunity of speaking to so many people and I don't know if they have taken up that message, but I hope they did. And slowly, slowly, if we have that mindset, I believe we will gain independence. I believe we will all have a common, we will all have a common enemy and we will fight that enemy and we will we will gain our independence. That is basically what is dividing the people of South Sudan. 
tribalism nothing other than that tribalism this is the biggest challenge that we are having we are having and we have some people that are advocating on that but because some other people have their political interest they still have a bigger influence than the activities that's why our country is still having a lot of insecurity no freedom of speech there are a lot of things because of some other individuals having political interests um i i know malik uh you mentioned something similar earlier so i am assuming that you agree i don't know if you want to add on a little bit well i guess she's mostly mentioned um most of the the key points or the key areas that need improvement in the country but i just wanted to mention that uh, we keep talking about how um like the importance of educating the girl child but at the end of the day i feel like that cannot be achieved until we educate the man first on the importance of educating the girl child so it doesn't matter how old these people are if the government could come up with programs that uh, that are aimed at educating these people on the importance of having education for both the boy and the girl in the family i think that's when we can see a difference so i personally think that in order for things to 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 look good in south sudan or for, for a change to happen we need to um educate everybody on the importance of education that's when we will see a difference in the country and then next i guess i could say that uh just what has what esther has said that we need to mobilize the youth we need to you know to understand that uh we need to come together as one and we are the future of uh, of the country you know not to just follow blindly on on the division that has been set in place by by the leaders and I think we also need to restructure our education system for the most part. And once we have that in place, I think we can now start to get rid of things like corruption and all these these other divisions that we may have in the country. So I'd say educate everybody, restructure the education system overall, get rid of the aid if possible, because that's when people will learn to depend on themselves. Because um, Ludin mentioned that we have a lot of fertile land Sudan has one of the most fertile lands, let's say, in, in, in Africa. We have this uh, Sud swamp, which is one of the biggest swamps in, in, in Africa, or even in the world, actually. And this is a place that you can grow multiple types of foods, like different types of crops. So we have enough land to feed ourselves, but because we, we still depend on aid for the most part, we're not willing to go out there, you know, and, and start farming or start taking taking like taking initiative to grow our own food so yeah that's pretty much all i had to add on but esther has pretty much summed up everything i think i would like to uh do something just add on something small on the education sector because i i i have i've been with people who are educated apparently someone studies and they are done with education but because of the manipulation that uh, somebody has manipulated them for their personal interest they leave education and they go for military the biggest thing people are crying right now is the security 
because of the the economy has really hit the country so bad that people are crying that okay we just need security and stability because uh, last month there was an incident that happened in one of the villages that the guys were in their farms and they were killed there were about oh, about six people that were killed in their farm it was actually about 20 this happened in uh, kajakeji this was before the pop. yes it was about 20 people that were killed yes just before the pop came yeah so you imagine you go you're going to farm but if somebody comes and kills you just for their personal interests for somebody's they're not working actually for them but for somebody's personal interest and you find some of these people it's not like they're they're not educated there are some of them that are educated so i think the biggest thing that we need to work on is to remove that mindset of tribalism then when we remove it that's when other things can come in but again poverty is another thing I'll say, I don't know uh, if you can put it in dollars. Apparently, a soldier in South Sudan is getting 2,000 pounds. This money does not come on time. Sometimes it takes three months to come. This very uh, soldier has a gun. He has a gun. He has a family. He has, he has children that need to eat. He has children that need to go to school he has children that a family that needs medication so i have my gun with me and my money is not there what happens of course i'm going to attack people i'm going to use my gun to do what to get my basic needs so i think another thing is also to probably uh pay these guys if not uh, increase their salary, if not increasing their salary, at least um, give them some allowances. Like maybe they can have food, even if my money is not coming on time. But if I have food, my children are studying for free. I have free health care. I don't think I'm going to, I don't think I will attack innocent people. A lot of these incidents are happening, not because these people want to do them, but because they are starving. They are lacking. They don't have anything. Some of them have, have resulted into alcohol. Some of them have resulted into drugs, not because, because of the frustration that they go through. Actually, 90% of South Sudanese are so bitter and frustrated. I think this is another thing that we need to work on. But the biggest thing, first security, stabilize the security, and then the rest can come in. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you. I think you and Malik did an amazing job wrapping this up. Um, first and foremost, again, Esther, I just want to extend my my many thanks, you know, for you taking out the time in your day to kind of sit here and um, help educate our listeners um, is definitely appreciated. So, um, but, you know, to kind of wrap up uh, what we talked about today, you know, we talked about the challenges um, the South Sudan is facing today. Um, we talked about 
potential chance of justice for South Sudan. And I looked into what the future would look like for South Sudan. We talked about education. We talked about period poverty. We ended up kind of wrapping it up with talking about, you know, what should happen in order for South Sudan to kind of fulfill its promise for, you know, a full independence, you know, so Luden, I know, I know you're waiting because I'm going to forget. So you might as well just jump in. Thank you very much, Mr. <laughs> Amy Kikoma. Um, as always, remember that we are on Spotify, Apple Music. We're also on Amazon Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So just feel free to type in Next Stop Africa. We're also on YouTube. So just go Next Stop Africa. You can also find our stuff right there. And as always, our social media handle is for Instagram, official underscore Next Stop Africa, Twitter, underscore Next Stop Africa, LinkedIn, because Amy really likes our LinkedIn page, Next Stop Africa. And, you know, feel free to leave us a review. We want only five stars, nothing less. Yes. If you give us anything less, we don't want it. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> um, but I think now we kind of getting towards my favorite part of each episode, which is the song of the day. Esther, I'm not sure if you are aware, but each episode we ask our guest um, to kind of give us their favorite song at the moment, preferably. <laughs> Preferably from, you know, the country which we're talking about. Uh, again, a lot of our guests tend to give us songs from Nigeria. And uh, <laughs> it's cool. But, you know, I think, you know, and uh, I think music is a language that everybody understands. So I always prefer, you know, a song from the respective country we're talking about. That way, you know, people get, you know, a decent amount of education and, you know, a song to kind of tie into the days we talked about. So do you have a song of the day for us? Uh, <laughs> I was not prepared for this. No, I mean, I it's just... I have to look for a song. Uh, what's, your, um, what's, your, what's your favorite song right now? Uh, do you have one? <laughs> I was actually thinking of the national anthem of South Sudan. I don't know if you've ever heard it. And uh, it no. will be very nice. <laughs> it would be very good if you listen to the lyrics, not the song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I believe, I think it has everything that you talked about. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So then that's yeah. perfect. Yeah, perfect way to wrap it up. Uh, uh, what's the national anthem called? Malik. <laughs> <laughs> Say something. <laughs> I can only know. I can, I can only know. I can only speak the first stanza. No. Uh, <laughs> is is there a name of the like? Is the national anthem just called the national anthem, or is there? Does it have a specific name? It's also that national anthem. Okay. Yeah. Right, cool. Yeah. Then that's fine. Um. So <laughs> today's song of the day uh, is coming from South Sudan, and it's South Sudan's um national anthem. Yeah, again, uh, Esther, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you were an amazing guest, um, very knowledgeable. Again, thank you. Uh, make sure you guys um, tuned in to our last episode that we did, 
we got got to mention this at the beginning of the episode, but make sure you tuned into the last episode that we did on Somalia, um, which was very good, very educational. Um, and make sure you're ready for our next episode, which would be on Uganda. But as always, until next time, peace.